Hello and welcome back. How are you doing? You're obviously listening to My Surrogacy Journey, the podcast, season two, and we're back for another incredible episode. You have the pleasure of just me today and my two wonderful guests. We're back in the studio in London and thank you for downloading us again. Have you subscribed yet? Make sure you do. And if you're new here, welcome along and please feel free to have a browse of season one and season two because today you're in for a treat. Season two has been in the making for almost a year and we are excited to be back recording it just for you. And we've even got a sponsor. Hearts on Essex Fertility Centre was established in 1989 with an outstanding track record and they've created over 7,000 babies as a result of their care over the last 34 years. Hearts on Essex Fertility Centre is a leading surrogacy clinic and was awarded Surrogacy Fertility Clinic of the Year in 2018 and 2022. So I'm really pleased to be joined by two special guests today. Uh, I'm going to give you a bit more information about them because they are both incredible at what they do. So we're going to be talking firstly to Rachel Cutting MBE uh, and she graduated from the University of Nottingham in 1995, completing the Association of Clinical Embryologists Postgraduate Diploma in her first training embryologist position. In 2001, she gained the position of Principal Embryologist at Jessup Fertility in Sheffield and was person responsible for 10 years and quality manager for 16 years. Working closely with the HFEA for several years, Rachel was involved in writing the national guidelines for single embryo transfer and was committed to a one at a time strategy to reduce the multiple pregnancy rates following IVF. Rachel was a member of the HFEA Authority and sat on the Statutory Approvals Committee until she joined the HFEA as the Director of Compliance and Information in 2019. Wowzers, that's one guest. The second guest, Dr. Carol Gilling-Smith. Carol is a CEO, Medical Director and Founder of the Agora Fertility Clinic in Brighton. She's a consultant gynecologist and fertility specialist. And those of you that are familiar with our social posts, either on Two Dads or MSJ, will know that she's no stranger to us too. Carol believes that all individuals, whatever their sexual orientation, gender identity and ethnic background, should have equal access to fertility care and be professionally supported. I am delighted to be joined by both of them today. Hello, how are you? Good? Good, thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank Good, you. thank you. Let's start with you, Rachel. Let's look at, it's been quite publicised and we've seen it a lot in the media, that this is a fairly significant year for donor-conceived people. Um, or those born after 2005, that's correct, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us why that's important and, and why the HFEA in particular have, have also been supporting and publicising some of the, 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 the initiatives that we've been seeing. So there was an important change in the law in 2005, which meant that donors who registered after the 1st of April 2005 could no longer donate anonymously. So they are what we call identifiable donors, which means at the age of 18, anybody who was conceived from a treatment using an identifiable donor can find out identifiable information about their the donor and that includes the name the date of birth and the last known postal address of that donor okay so already i'm hearing that that potentially there could be some issues there from a finding where that donor could be 
That's right. Obviously, 18 years was quite a long time yeah. ago, wasn't it? And what life moves on. 18 years ago, jeez. Yeah, and I suppose that most people do move in 18 years, yeah. don't they? Maybe yeah. several times. So what we're really trying to encourage is for donors to update their address and they can do that either by phoning the HFEA and find out how to do it through there or phoning the clinic that they donated on. Obviously, the HFEA also has lots of information about this on their website as well. But ideally, um, if you donated at a clinic, pick the phone up, update the details, put your new address um, to the clinic and that automatically will then be updated in our register at the HFEA. So we can try and ensure that the right information is going out to those that are applying for it. And if your clinic is no longer there or closed, is that a case then you speak to the HFEA? Yeah, you can come direct to the HFEA for that. Amazing. Okay, that's our first takeaway already. That's update your address and let's let's make sure that that's all done correctly. Carol, from your point of view, I guess some of the dates are less relevant to you because of when the Agora was first established. But tell us about some of the change that you've seen from a clinic perspective and a donor perspective since 2005. Yes, it's been um, an important uh, time, you know, an important 18 years in which there was initially quite a reaction from those that might have thought about donating that um, there's a lot of fear about, about having their information being there and available for a child. And we saw a drop in the number of people coming forward to donate. Um, and that was felt th- throughout, I think, throughout the UK. And we saw an increase in the number of people looking abroad. And, and I think it was really the birth of, of the fertility tourism agent, you know, industry. I definitely, uh, I, was, I was working in London at Chelsea and Westminster, running the IVF unit there. We definitely started to work with clinics in Spain, in pl- clinics in Greece, and patients would ask us, um, you know, how to how to get there. We would support them on that journey. So that was probably the first 10, 12 years we saw that trend. And then probably in the last six years, we've seen the reverse happening, that that patients are having treatment in the UK, but they are importing frozen eggs and frozen sperm from abroad, where, you know, it is easier to recruit donors. Um, we're working very closely with the HFEA and getting import licenses to facilitate the progress of that of that pathway. So whilst we do see donors coming forward in the UK, uh, I can tell you that it, it, there is a huge shortage. We've, we've talked about it a lot um, for our patients. Why is it easier? Because it's, it's in Spain, in Greece, donors, they're not regulated. I think the regulation we have here is, is, is fantastic, but the regulation is much less prominent in Spain and donors can be remunerated far more. And one of the things that we find now is that the current remuneration for, for example, sperm donors doesn't really cover the time off work and the time, you know, and the, and the travel expense. So it is difficult. People who donate have to give up a lot. And in our current sort of financial difficult times, I think we're seeing less and less people come forward. So I, I think that's probably the reason. I don't think it's because people want anonymous donors. I generally don't think that they want identifiable donors, but they want to start treatment quickly. They don't want to wait. And there's a much larger pool of donors um, from countries abroad. Do you think, say, for example, sperm donors are motivated by being compensated or the fact that they're doing what they're doing is enough for them? For every sort of 100 sperm donor applications, you'll be lucky to have one person go through, satisfy all the criteria and actually then be willing to give up their time to come for all the screening tests, multiple visits, post-screening tests at quarantine. 
and uh, and it's a huge commitment. I I don't think it's just financial, but I think financial is now becoming an issue. Mm-hmm. They, they're saying it's look, it's, I just can't, I you know I can't get the time off work. I'll have to take annual leave, and it's a lot of visits. So I I think it's something that that we need to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think egg donors are better compensated for their time. We are seeing egg donors come forward, um, but we. Most most of our patients import sperm from Denmark and and countries like that, where they have you know very very good banks. And what are you noticing then from a clinic point of view in terms of some of those trends? Then you know what are recipients asking for? Have you noticed any changes? Well, there's been a huge change in twenty years, and in, in the modern modern family building has has really grown um, a lot in the last. 10, 15 years, there's much more awareness of of the options in the UK um, for intended parents thinking about gestational surrogacy, for same-sex female couples thinking about shared motherhood and intra-partner donation, um, using donor sperm as a, as a single person. All those trends have, have really, um, you know, fueled the demand for more donor, donor sperm, donor eggs, and the demand for clinics to provide sensitive services that that really understand the pathways and provide the necessary support, counselling, information to those that have chosen that route. So it's definitely, I, I wouldn't say all clinics have have chosen to to you know to go down uh, the route of offering those treatments uh, but as you know you know those yeah. you, the clinics that you partner with you know we have a we have a great interest in being able to provide the full spectrum of treatments and i think that in parallel with that i think that patients are coming because you know the, the heterosexual couples trying to conceive i think find it very difficult to talk about what they've been through but yeah. in um, the lgbtq plus community there's much more chat about yeah. their experience. So people are sharing their experiences. So I'm finding patients coming to my clinic already well informed. They are going to the HFEA website often before they come mm-hmm. to my clinic. And the website has also um, transformed. I, I think it's an extremely good website. The information there is extremely relevant. It's updated regularly and and sensitive to the needs of, of those looking for donor uh, eggs and sperm. Do you, because of your base in Brighton and the population that you serve, both heterosexual and LGBTQ, I'm, this, I'm curious to know this one, so I've sort of thrown this one in. Do you see any trends between more LGBTQ people donating than heterosexual? Or is is there any pattern there? Do you see more LGBTQ people, because of the very nature of how they build their family, they also donate more than what a heterosexual person would? Yes, without a doubt. We, we see a lot of... Um those who've been through donor sperm treatment um, as single people or shared motherhood, whatever they do, they they really want to. Either they'll do a cycle of egg sharing uh-huh. in shared motherhood or they'll um, come back after a successful cycle of treatment and, and have some patients that have donated two or three times in this way and feel that that is a very fulfilling totally. thing to do. Totally understand and, that. And uh, intended parents have donated sperm and it's um, it is more difficult, but... You know, I, I think, again, it's about those that have gone down just a straightforward IVF pathway with their partner sperm may not think about it. No. It just hasn't hit them that this is something they could, they yep. could help with. This is the shortage. This is the yeah. issue. Yeah. So, Rachel, 
when Dr. Carroll's mentioned with regards to importing of, of gametes, sperm, eggs, what considerations should people have when they're considering importing sperm, for example? There are some considerations to think through. One of the ones that um, I think is really important is about the 10 family limit. So if you've got a UK donor and they're donating in a HFEA licensed fertility clinic in the UK, there is a limit that only 10 families can use that donor that can be created from that donor. So it means that there might be 10 to 20 siblings, for example, but then there will be a limit on that. What you've got to remember if you're importing a donor from overseas, that that donor might have donated in that country or other countries. Mm -hmm. So when your child gets to 18 and can find out identifiable information and can start maybe on DNA ancestry websites now, because that's so common, isn't it, that they might actually could potentially have a lot more half-siblings than they think. And that's something, I think, for the well-being. And so it's not too distressing for the child later on to think about. So what you're saying then is that person that donated, in theory, could have also donated in multiple places in their home country or even internationally, potentially. So it's just fully being prepared and, and aware what that Pandora's box could actually look like. That's right. Yes, exactly. That a donor could have donated in different countries. And although the regulations to import a donor means that they have to be identifiable, yeah. the limits on compensation are limited, and it would only be used for 10 families in the UK, the clinic or donor bank where they've donated abroad can use the donor in their country as many times as they like. There isn't that regulation that we have in the UK. And would you, would the HFEA still hold a record of the donor still on a central database? Absolutely. If you import a donor into the UK, they are registered as a UK donor. And then that donor will be under the UK regulations. But, you know, the HFEA does have no remit whatsoever no, of outside of the UK. Of course, that makes perfect sense. OK, well, let's talk about opening the register. I've been on a couple of webinars already and trying to participate in whatever way that, that we can, either as my surrogacy journey or Two Dads UK. But explain to our listener, please, what opening the register means and what the impact is to recipients, to donors. And then we'll talk about what that means for everyone, clinic included. I suppose starting at the beginning, in fact, to 1991, when the HFEA was formed, one of the things that the HFEA had to do was to hold a register. And that register contains all the treatments that have occurred in the UK, including all cycles that anywhere where donated material was used. And that's held on our register which means that we know which donor was used in which treatment. And then obviously that then helps us if a child has been born, being able to link that information together. So opening the register means going into the register and looking at the children that have been born, who their donor was, and you know for a donor, how many children have been born. So it's accessed through... Um, the opening the register um, link that's on the HFEA website and you can apply for information if you're a donor. You can apply as a parent of a donor-conceived child. You can apply at 16 and 18. I'll explain a little bit about that after, but basically you 
click on a link, it goes through to a secure website at the HFEA. And the first thing that we do is verify somebody's identity to start with. So if you're a donor, you might want to know how many children have been born as a result of your donation. And you can just say apply through the website and you can find out the number, the sex and the year of birth of any children born. If you're a parent, you can find out non-identifying information and how many siblings there are. Um, And then if you're 16, you can apply for non-identifying information as well, such as hair colour, eye colour, occupation. And some donors, um, especially in the latter years, have written uh, what we call a pen portrait or goodwill message. And and they're lovely. They're so lovely. Some of them, um, obviously, when I was an embryologist, we recruited donors and we've just done an audit of them as well to make sure that the quality of them is good and relevant and, and useful for recipients. And yeah, you know, sometimes they bring a tear to your eye. They, honestly, they're just so. Yeah. I revisited Tallulah's recently just to mm-hmm. refresh my mind, and it's it, it did exactly yeah. that. It's such yeah. an emotional read. So they can have that, obviously, but that's only if there's any information in there that we think might be identifiable. We, we redact that at that time. And then, of course, from 2005, I discussed about the change in the law. So this year, 18-year-olds will be able to find out identifiable information. And the process for that is that they will apply to us. We then um, check their identity. We'll always check back with a clinic for the information because this information is so important to get right. Mm -hmm. So we will go back to the clinic to make sure what's held in our register matches that of the clinic's. And then we will write the donor at their last known address to say that an application has been made um, and what support is available for them, just to sort of um, let them know that an application has been made. And then once we've done that, we will then write to the donor-conceived individual with that information, again, offering support and and hopefully, you know, helping the, the contact to be successful. Amazing. Thank you for taking us through and talking us through all of that. Um, What does opening the register mean from a a clinic point of view, Carol, generally, not necessarily just yours, but the industry as a whole? What what does it mean to you? It's it's a really important time for us to, to be prepared for what donors will want from us and what um, recipients and IVF conceived donor conceived children will want from us mm-hmm. i think i think we have to um put in place really robust measures to support uh at whatever stage you are you know as a clinic we're, we're by comparison a relatively new clinic so we opened in 2007 so we probably really won't see you know donor conceived children for, for a number of years but we are already having the conversation we're making sure that we have checked um that we haven't imported any donor sperm or eggs or embryos that, that were pre this time that we've actually got our counselors prepared and we're starting to have um, you know staff teaching around this because of those questions are not necessarily going to come out in a in a clinic situation in a, in a consultation but there'll be inquiries through the phone so yeah. you prepare your your front of front of house staff for mm-hmm. those questions and who to direct them to and we need to ensure that we've got counselling available, available for the children and for the donors mm-hmm. as the as the time comes. So that's a, that's a very very important step we've taken. We've also felt as a clinic it was important to look after IVF conceived children or, or assisted conception conceived children as part of the breaking the taboo, breaking this um, this sort of barrier to discuss what's happened and how 
how children are being created. We started this year some IVF discovery days. I've seen and, those. Um, really, they look really good. And it was just an idea to to really and the and the parents were were delighted. But it just happened to be that quite a lot of the parents who came had used uh, either donor eggs or we sperm. We came to one of them. Yeah. And you saw, we tried to put into, you know, into um, a more childlike setting. These were sort of seven, eight-year-olds or Tallulah. Tallulah was loving being a We were just girl. trying to talk about sperm and eggs and how embryos are created and how, you know, for example, in surrogacy, you know, somebody was, was kind enough to, to carry an embryo. And we put it in a very sort of fun way. Yeah. And some of my older children, 13, 14, I just, I've just you know, the... ITV News came in and, and recorded a, you know, and had an interview with uh, with a young, very mature, fourteen-year-old um, who actually went. We we took him into the lab and and he saw how ICSI is performed and he, he was donor conceived, uh, donor sperm conceived, where ICSI was performed, and he came out absolutely fascinating, asking a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And and he came out saying, I'm so glad, you know, it'll be exciting at the point when I'm 18 to find out more about my donor. But for now, you know, I would like at some point in my future life to donate. Um, so just that explaining in, in, a, in a way, in a format that children can understand, I, I think understand, is a really yeah. important step. Yeah, really important. And, and when it comes to, you know, talking about why donation, you know, has happened, I mean, his mother had a wonderful scrapbook and those scrapbooks are, are an absolutely ideal way Perfect. of preparing children for that sort of point at 18 where they might want to find out a little bit more about their donor. Yeah, and it makes me smile really because certainly in our household talking about sort of donor eggs donor sperm is something that we've we've had to do but i was recently at um it was a end of term party and i had several parents come up to me and they're like do you know what we love the fact that Tallulah's in joshua's class and i was like oh why is that and it's because the conversations that we now have at dinner time were conversations they never thought they would ever have to have but they're talk- Tallulah will talk about her egg donor and then Joshua's going, well, what's an egg donor, mommy? And then the conversations are happening. So, you know, through those types of engagement and, and orientation with regards to the industry and the sector are better equipping this new breed of youth to have a positive experience, not only around IVF, but around being donor conceived. I think it's, it's wonderful what you're doing. And it's I'm definitely hearing certain elements of Ripple, certainly from our own kids and what their friends are saying. Um, Rachel, let's just come back to you again, just so I'm clear. And so our listener understands opening the register seems fairly straightforward. We've established that. We've also established that updating your address is key because it's going to be one of the mechanisms. How does this impact a previous donor? So if our listener is a previous sperm donor, is there much impact to them and if there is, when are the various triggers? Yeah, if they were a donor before 2005, they will be registered as an anonymous donor, which means the donor-conceived child can only find out that non-identifiable information, such as the pen portrait, uh, hair colour, eye colour, um, occupation, interests. But of course, after time's moved on like we said it's much more open and transparent now about treatment and talked about it might be that a donor actually wants to re-register as an identifiable donor and that's something you can do again through the HFEA website and then it means that if a child does get in touch at 18 or a donor conceived individual decides 
to make an application, at that point we can let them know that mm-hmm. they are an identifiable donor and then it's up to them what, what information that they receive. But we have had quite a few donors pre-2005 re-register. Have We've you really? About 300 now that have registered, which is brilliant. So hopefully, want to be identified. Yeah, hopefully. Um, we'll, you know, hopefully this year with the publicity around 2023 and the new changes, hopefully you know a few donors out there might decide to do the same. Uh, and if you're listening, donor, make sure you've updated your address. Rachel's told me that's really important. Carol, are you experiencing more known donors come to the clinic? So in the example of a surrogacy team, when they're bringing their own known donor, um, because people want to know from the get-go where the gametes have come from. Yes, I think that uh, UK surrogacy has really increased in the last five years and we do sense that same-sex male uh, intended parents do want to have a known donor Mm -hmm. and do look at ways of finding known egg donors Mm -hmm. and the different options, Mm -hmm. you know, through my surrogacy journey, through Mm -hmm. Surrogacy UK or through just talking, talking to people, talking to friends, making their you know, their journey more open and uh, and finding people that they know want to be part of that journey and be known donors. Mm-hmm. And I think it is perhaps, you know, a sign of, of the times that, you know, as with ancestry, people wanting to understand more about their genetics, but not wait until the child's 18. And I yeah. think there's, a, you know, there's a real discussion about mm-hmm. should we wait you know, that's that's opening up the conversation into another into another question. But that's a whole other wait, episode. Carol. Should we should we wait until a child's eighteen because you know children are, are pretty mature well before them, and and I think that's why known donation is 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 trending. Do you have any thoughts on known egg donation, Rachel? One of the things that we're looking at in modernising the Act, and one of the questions that we're going to be considering is. When should a donor-conceived individual be able to get that information? Good. I think that's really important. And of course, at the moment, it's 18. Mm-hmm. But it might be when we've thought about it, had the conversations, consulted. It may be that it's done from birth mm-hmm. or at the time of donation. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a big question that we need to consider and certainly one that we are, you know, are considering. Mm-hmm. And that is a perfect segue to about modernising the regulation, as we've just explained, Carol, you alluded to, you know, changes that you'd like to potentially see. And obviously, as you've just mentioned that one, Rachel, could you talk a bit more about what does modernising the regulation of fertility treatment uh, and research involving human embryos? What does that look like? Yeah, I suppose if we go back to 1991, it was a very important piece of legislation. It enabled the public to have confidence with IVF and fertility treatment. It gave reassurance for patients that they were having safe, ethical treatment. And I think, you know, we're a world leader in the UK with treatment and as a regulator. So I think personally, I think it's from being on both sides as somebody in a fertility clinic and a regulator now, I think it's very positive in the UK to have that regulation. But 30 years ago was a long time. Science moved on. Family dynamics has moved on. And the legislation hasn't really changed that much. So what we're looking at is areas of the Act where we think it could be improved, modernised, changed for the better for patients, for clinics and us as a regulator as Such well. Such as what would you, what would some of those categories yeah, be? Yeah, so for example, 
at the heart of everything we do, it's got to be patient care. It's yeah. got to make sure that patients are getting the best care, safe, ethical treatment. Uh-huh. But some around treatment like consent, consent's very complicated and it has to be complicated because it's got to reflect what's in the law and make sure in these complex scenarios that patients' wishes are met. But I'm sure we can do some work around simplifying consent um, to make it easier for clinics, make less mistakes, make it easier mm-hmm. for patients to understand that as yeah, well. I totally get that. Consents can be confusing and particularly in the case of surrogacy when someone originally consents for the use of IVF and then there's a whole reconsent process. Is there any other elements within patient care that are going to be looked at potentially? I think, um, obviously, we've just spoke about the donor information, when that information is the right time to give out. But fertility treatment moves forward quite quickly and there's always innovation and new research. And what we'd like to be able to do is if new treatments and research needs to be done, make that easier to be able to happen. And so we're looking at how we can do pilot studies, how we can do sandboxing so that innovation can be done in a safe and proper way. So in terms of some of that modernisation, a question or a community of people that that often come to us wanting to build a family through surrogacy are people that are HIV positive, that may be on retroviral medication, but they can't do surrogacy in the UK um, and have to therefore go abroad. Is that something that the HFEA can comment on or what, what's the stance there? I think it's important to realise what the HFEA can and can't do. And, you know, our function is to uphold regulation. We don't write it. We don't make the rules. So sometimes when it's like, well, why is the HFEA doing this? It's not us. It's what rules and laws are there that are in place. And we just have to sort of police them. So if they're like regarding viral screening, when the European Tissue and Cells Directive got transposed into UK law, we have to just make sure that that's abided by. And with viral screening, some of those, the laws have made from expert opinions and advice from other committees. And unfortunately, it's not the HFEA decision to whether those laws should or shouldn't be followed. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to make sure they are complied with. And it's the same, unfortunately, with shared motherhood for same-sex couples. Unfortunately, the European law, when it was transposed into UK law, said that there had to be screening done. And we know that that's outdated and we would like to see change. And we are, you know, working towards hopefully that happening. But it's not the HFEA's decision to make those changes, unfortunately. That's really useful to know. Thank you for clarifying that. So we also hear about people doing home insemination with eggs or sperm, depending if that's traditional surrogacy or or finding a sperm donor. What are some of the risks or things that people should consider? Yeah, there are quite a lot of risks and the HFEA would really strongly recommend that anybody seeking fertility treatment with donor sperm or donor eggs should do that through a HFEA licensed centre. And that's because of keeping them safe for mother and baby. So, for example, you would want to have adequate screening tests to make sure that the viral screening is done so that there's no um, potential of disease transmission. And then we've also got to think about the welfare of the child as well. So I mentioned earlier about the 10 family limit to make sure that there aren't too many half siblings out there. And also um, from a child's perspective about learning about 
who their donor was when they're 18, be able to find accurate information about that. And the laws around legal parenthood are so complex. So if you're a same-sex couple and you're not married or in a civil partnership, it means that you, the second parent, might not be the legal parent of that child. And, you know, we can fill consent forms in in a clinic and they'll do that to make sure that when the child is born, you do have legal parenthood over that child. And that's really important for the the future, especially if relationships break down so that you'll have access to that child. And, of course, if that's done at home insemination, not only you might not be the second parent, the donor will actually be regarded as the parent. parent. Whereas, of course, in a clinic the donor is donating as a donor not to have any parental rights there's so many other things racing around in my head but i know i've only you're only here for a a short amount of time i'm going to put some comments in the show notes carol i'll obviously list the fabulous work that you do at the agora and rachel will make sure we've got the relevant links in there for the hfea website and opening the register and what that means as well Really interesting. Don't forget, everybody, if you need your podcast fix, we're here every Monday, proudly sponsored by Hearts and Essex Facility Centre. If you want to find out more about My Surrogacy Journey, then please head over to our website, mysurrogacyjourney.com, or find us on Instagram at official mysurrogacyjourney. If you like this episode, then please subscribe to the series and we'll have another episode coming out every Monday. Thank you for listening. We have been your My Surrogacy Journey, the podcast hosts. Goodbye. Goodbye.